Spade, Spoon, Soul, a podcast about all the ways that food intersects with our faith, from seed to spade to spoon. I am Bishop Jennifer Baskerville Burroughs, here in the Diocese of Indianapolis. We are on the ancestral lands of the Kickapoo, among many other indigenous peoples, and delighted to be here today alongside my good friend Jerusalem. Jerusalem, would you introduce yourself? Yes. Hi, Bishop. Good to see you again. Um, I am Jerusalem Greer, and I am an author and um, staff officer for the Evangelism Church and the Episcopal Church. Um, And I live um, in central Arkansas on a little farm that we call a hobby farm because it takes all our money and doesn't make any for us. And we are on the ancestral land of the Osage people. And um, Bishop Jennifer, I just need to give you and our guest, Kendall, a warning today. We are having a, a a needy day at, at the farm with the critters so i'm currently wearing one dog um uh, yes i have a sling on and um, yeah she's on my back and um, this is ridiculous um and then i also might have a um, newborn chick um on my chest which you cannot see and and um we'll just call them foundation garments um because she was abandoned by her mother and so until we get the heat lamp yeah so we're just so we might have all kinds of um, critters joining us today, but <laughs> thankfully, um, I think that our guest, Kendall Vanderslice, um, is going to be able to handle it. So um, I'm grateful for that. So let me just tell you a little bit about Kendall. I know you and I are both big fans of her and her work. Um, Kendall is a baker and a writer on the intersection of food and faith. Um, things we're both passionate about. She is a graduate of Wheaton College and Boston University and Duke Divinity School. She writes um, for Christianity Today, Christ and Pop Culture, Religion News Service, um, so many different things. And one of my favorite contributions she has made is her book, We Will Feast, Rethinking Dinner, Worship, and the Community of God. Kendall lives in Durham, North Carolina, um, with her own critter, a big-eared beagle named Strudel. So, um, Kendall, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me. It's so wonderful to be here. Well, I want to get right to it because I feel like we could, I mean, literally, you are the reason why we should have a meetup. We, we're not going to have enough time, but could you help kick us off by telling us where you are rooted? It's a question we ask ourselves each time. Yes, I am in Durham, North Carolina. Um, so I'm on the ancestral land, lands of the Eno and Okanichi people. Um, and I have lived here for four years, but have it has in that time become my home and I really love it here. Wonderful. Thank you. So can you tell us a little bit more about like what part are you in this, like an urban part of Durham? Help us paint a picture of where you are. Yeah, so I live, um, I actually just moved. I just bought a house. So I now actually have a plot of land that is, (laughs) that is my own and I am, I am staying and um, becoming rooted to this place. I've, I've been here just over a month, so it's quite new. Yeah, but I, I live uh, in pretty close to downtown Durham. Durham's a pretty small town, um, so the, the downtown is pretty accessible from, from most places, but I, I live overlooking a park, um, so I feel like I have the benefits of so much green space, but also the benefits of lots of people um, and lots of things around. That's awesome. I've always wanted to go to Durham. I don't think it's one of the you know, I've been to different places in North Carolina, but one day, one day I'm going to get there. It's a great, uh, great city. I think everyone should come here. <laughs> 
what is our presiding bishop he likes durham too um from raleigh but he also likes durham um <laughs> so yeah so you've got this you've got this home you're making um yourself at home and and being rude and putting down roots in this new place so tell us um whether it's you know in on your new little plot of land or whether it's broader than that how does creation um specifically nourish your soul you're all about nourishing us with your bread and your edible theology and your beautiful work so how does creation then nourish you um and specifically for doing the work yeah i i for me it is really um the tangible work of feeling food in my hands as i am cooking and as i am baking um that i feel most nourished i I love eating of course and love feeding others um but for me the actual process of feeling flour transform in my fingers as i make bread um is just an incredibly restorative process and i would say that is kind of when i most sense god's presence is in the feel of dough in in my hands and witnessing that transformation um not just with my eyes but feeling it feeling the transformations that take place within my hands as i as i work with bread I love that. I know we can all relate. And I was thinking, you know, there are there, there is probably a large enough subset of the Episcopal Church and friends that we could just have, as you do, a bread and a <laughs> bread praying workshop. I, mean, I love that you offer that. And I'm going, oh, I've <laughs> that's the critter not strapped to me. That's Carter. <laughs> Hello, Carter. <laughs> but um, I just love how um, you know the sense that it's something that's alive and creating and it's something that people like consume without a lot of thought and yet there's this wonderful way in which you help us see the miracle of it um in the way you talk about it and teach about it yeah you know i mean in in sort of our in the eucharist we believe that this this bread itself transforms and that this bread transforms us um but i think when you take the time to really understand how you actually bake bread you realize that those sort of bread is just a product of continual transformation and a continual sort of process of something that is dead being brought back to life. Um, and so it's just a, so wonderful to actually get to know bread as a, as a agricultural and cultural product and, and realize that the bread itself kind of speaks these theological truths. The bread itself teaches us about God in its very nature. I love that. Um, what, so edible theology is kind of your thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes. And centered primarily around bread. So can you tell us and tell our listeners, like, what is edible theology? Um, how did you start it? Like, where did this even, like, what's the, what's the little yeast? What are the ingredients? Like, I want to use yeah. all the metaphors now. <laughs> so edible theology is an educational media project. Um, and our goal is to help people connect the communion table to the tables that we eat at throughout the week. Um, so we develop resources for churches, for families, and for individuals um, that hits at that intersection of food and spiritual formation. Um, so we believe that God meets us in the mundane tasks of our everyday life, that God meets us in the kitchen, God meets us at the table, God meets us in the garden, um, and that this is evidenced in scripture, but it's also evidenced in um, the history of the church, and it's we can we can look for the evidence of that in our own lives and so um all the materials that we provide are meant to help others um sense god's nearness in these tangible mundane areas of their life so 
So it we it has been sort of a um, circuitous journey to to starting. I am definitely someone who thinks sort of circularly, and um, I tend to have lots of ideas. I know this most people are listening and can't see my hands sort of all all over my head, but I, I have ideas that sort of bounce around in my mind like this. And so, um, you know, I've had so many ideas for the last five or six years of. Um, just thoughts that I wanted to chase down or um, resources that I wanted to provide. And so I wanted to create an avenue to be able to explore those topics and share them with others. Um, and so Edible Theology started as a newsletter, just an email newsletter, where I started to parse out some of these um, theological thoughts. Um, and it grew from there as people engaged with the newsletter. Um, I, After I released my book, We Will Feast, I had a lot of people asking for resources on how to apply the ideas that were in it. Um, so then we, we developed our first course, uh, which is a, a video course called Worship at the Table, um, designed to help pastors think through how to um, how to host a worship service around a table in their own congregation and, and um, to meet the needs of their own community. And it was sort of ironic timing. We were prepared to develop that and launch that right as COVID hit in spring of 2020. Um, and so we ended up through that developing sort of um, a series of virtual workshops and um, resources to help clergy host virtual meals over the course of um, while while churches were meeting virtually and while people were longing for this kind of point of connection. Um, we asked, how can we use the table in this time um, to, to build connection even when we um, are, are separated? And so that was sort of the, the next step, and it has just continued to develop from there. Um, we have Bible studies. We have um, a podcast that we'll be launching about the same time that this episode launches um, of kitchen meditations, just meditations to listen to while you're cooking. Um, and yeah, we just have so many more ideas for the future. It's just continuing to grow. I'm just telling you now that if I were not a bishop, I would want your job. Like, this is, <laughs> like all the things. Seriously, it's like if I had kept up with blogging, could I have gotten there, you know? And so I just love it. And I just, you know, the idea that people are literally hungry for this kind of engagement and formation and connection. I suspect that as much as it's been true through the pandemic, this hunger will continue once we're gathering back because we've, we have been transformed by this and people have been experimenting in the kitchen and having to learn new skills and make connections in different ways. And so it seems like it's all really right on time. You know, I, I think that um, I was wanting to do this work before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic really um, gave me the sort of space to to launch Edible Theology into what it is, but also I think it um, it just opened our eyes as sort of the church in America, certainly, but the church as a whole to sort of the, the holes that already existed in the ways that we were doing things um, and the hungers and needs that were present that just became undeniable over the course of the pandemic. Um, and so these, these themes that I was already sort of exploring um, really began to take root and um, it's been so much fun to be able to to share them with other people and to um to see other people sort of taking them and making them their own yeah I still pinch myself every morning I can't believe that this is what I get to do <laughs> that's amazing I love it and yeah it was really interesting timing right like you had done some workshops at Forma 2020 and um, yeah I think or you did one in 2021 and and I think it was really people were excited because they are 
this has put a new spin on how we gather. And, um, you know, there's a lot of chatter around a lot of the mainline denominations, the Episcopal Church being, of course, one of those, about the future of the church and about decline and about buildings. And um, there's a lot of anxiety around some of that stuff, which of is makes perfect sense. There's also some hope and some imagination happening about, okay, so if we can't stay in our buildings for many reasons, um, some we might choose, some that might just be forced on us by economics, um, are there other ways to come together, to come together and gather in parks and driveways and backyards um, and coffee shops and those sorts of things? So can you talk a little bit about what you have seen and why dinner church in particular, because um, you and I both have like a shared passion for dinner church. Um <laughs> So if you could just talk a little bit about maybe, you know, why you love dinner church, why you believe in dinner church, and maybe how you see it fitting into where the church is going um, in the future as we move into this new thing of, you know, I, I say Phyllis Tickle was right. Here we are. We're emerging. <laughs> we're emerging into this new thing. So, um, yeah. So what has dinner church fit into that emergence? Yeah. So I... Um... In So I have spent the last close to seven years now researching churches that worship around the table um, and use food in creative ways um, to sort of facilitate community within the life of the church. And the thing that I have found in all of this, in this research, both of churches, but then also my time speaking with other food studies scholars um, who are not religiously inclined in any way, I have found that there is, there is a deep hunger for community, of course, but not just community, spiritual community. There is a deep hunger for a community that has the capacity to respond to um, just these complex questions about life and about, um, you know, what it means to be human and um, what it means to live in a, the world in the midst of climate change. What, is, what does it mean um, you know, to, ha to have needs and to need other people and to, to have these physical needs that sometimes seem to um, sort of wrestle against just the, um, the needs of creation. And the church has has the language and to respond, has the language to speak to these deep questions and concerns and fears, um, and has the traditions to provide this community that, that people are seeking. But most many people have not actually found that conversation taking place in the church, and they have not um, just found the freedom to sort of ask their questions and to wrestle through their questions in the church. Um, and so I just so love dinner church as a model because what I have what I have seen is that it provides a space for people to gather, and it it sort of it allows people to engage these questions and these fears and these concerns that they have in an, an environment that feels less charged than a traditional Sunday worship service. Um, and so it has been just so amazing to watch um, and to listen to the stories of people who are, um, who attend and who lead dinner churches and who are, I think, just seeing a very different sort of history of the church unfold before them. Um, they're, they're seeing sort of this revival and this excitement and this, um, this 
depth of community form um, in a time when I think so much of the dominant narrative is one of church decline and one of um, church hurt and one of um, just, you know, a, a desire to, to leave spiritual community when in fact in these dinner churches we're seeing a deep hunger that's being met in these creative and unique ways. I love that, all of that background. Kathleen, I'll tell you, it seems like every week or so I hear a story that speaks to the current situation in our country. You know, there are ways in which we are polarized and all the things. And what I will hear is someone say is, well, you know, it used to be that the senators would all eat together and they had a common dining room. So the way we got to policy was different. Or it used to be that grandparents were teaching their grandchildren how to cook. And so there was this intergenerational thing happened. Or it used to be that the family did. And I'm going, well, this used to be keeps centering around this essential thing around food <laughs> and the time it takes to be together and to talk over that meal and how it is just so fundamental to, I mean, it's not that a dinner can solve all the problems of the world, but it can get us a far pace down the road, I think. I really it do. does. It does. I think it both um, sort of, again, relieves some of the pressure of a conversation. You know, some of these difficult topics that would be hard to talk about if you're just sitting in a circle with nothing in between you and nothing for your hands to do. Suddenly, when you have a table between you, your body feels a little more secure. Um, your hands have something to do. If conversation gets awkward at the very least everyone can put their food in their mouth and there's a reason nobody's talking um but also i think that the the substance of cooking together and actually eating together um it does sort of change the conversation itself it it opens up avenues to um to talk about you know if we're talking sort of around a topic sometimes food itself gives us the language to talk about what we're actually discussing. Um, I remember when I first started in this work, I had some just really fascinating and helpful conversations with my grandmother um, who grew up on a farm in rural Arkansas. And for her, getting out of the farm and out of the kitchen was a sign of um, success and was a sign of um, freedom. And, you know, for her, it was this ability to just go to Sam's and buy everything she needed at Sam's and never have to spend hours in the kitchen was the sign of freedom. And so she was just a constant challenge to me, um, you know, in, in, like it's it's a great privilege that you can choose to go back into the kitchen. It's a great privilege that you can choose to go garden and you can we can celebrate that joy and also realize that it is an incredible privilege that you know we we get to choose to do this and find the delight in it. And I think even that level of conversation totally changes the ways that we discuss economics and climate change and 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 how eating and cooking and and um, farming play into that. Absolutely. And I, I, I'm sorry, Jerusalem. I'm like, I just want, this is why we need an hour. I just, I, you know, I served this church in Syracuse that was really ran the gamut racially and socioeconomically. And the place where we could come together was around the food because we were able to acknowledge that that's the place where we could have the hard conversation about class differences. And those who had time to leisurely enjoy a five course meal versus those who just like don't have the bandwidth to, to heat the mac and cheese because life. And so how do we name that? that reality and then figure out how to have the church be this place of intersection where we can have a different experience on both ends of that spectrum, you know? 
I love that idea. You know, there's an author and Kendall, you might know her, Shannon Martin. Um, yeah, y'all, yeah, both of you. And I love what she talks, how she talks about this, right? Like she, like us, Bishop Jennifer, she was like an early blogger, right? And she like, you know, wanted to make all the good food and set the pretty tables and have all this, like the hostess with the mostess, right? Like, um, and when she and her family like intentionally moved into this very diverse neighborhood racially economically you know a bunch of different things she really wanted to open her home and have dinners right like lots of conversations around food but what she found was that if she served overly complicated dishes and used her best china and even used cloth napkins that a lot of her guests kind of didn't feel at ease right like they didn't feel like and she thought she was like being very generous and hospitable and adding beauty and all of those things were true except that it wasn't the language of the neighborhood right the language of the neighborhood was box mac and cheese and paper towels just sitting in the middle of the table and um, paper plates and those sorts of things just when she realized that 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 would set her guest at ease and neutralize some of those polarizing things, right? About the haves and the haves nots and all that kind of stuff, right? That they were able to form deeper relationships. And soon it wasn't just her providing the dinner. Then the her friends, her neighbors begin to bring their food um, to the table as well because they saw it as a table where everyone was genuinely welcome with whatever they had to bring. Um, and so she's like, so sometimes the meals made no sense. Like it wasn't like, you know, this Italian night or <laughs> Mexican night, right? It was like everything night. Like we might have five starches and no vegetables, right? Or, or whatever. And so, um, but I just, I love the, the beauty of that and that opening ourselves up. And so I think anyone who's out there who's listening, who's considering doing dinner church, right? Like you don't have to figure it all out by yourself. And it doesn't mean that you have to serve this fancy meal or whatever, right? Like it can be just pizza. Like if that's what needs to just be for your dinner church, then that sometimes it is everybody cooking together. And sometimes it's just ordering pizza, right? So yeah. yeah, I one of my one of my favorite dinner churches that I visited while researching We Will Feast um, was a church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and they um, they served pizza for most of their dinner church services. And the reason was because a large portion of the folks who attended the dinner church um, were people without homes um, or without stable housing, and most of the meals that they got. And through churches throughout the week, they had no agency over, they had no say over. And when they got to choose what they wanted to eat, they asked for pizza. And so the church just regularly served pizza because that was the, not just like this kind of taste of God's love, but also this, um, this space for agency and choice. Um, and when I was there, we had pizza the night that I was there visiting and, you know, we would, we would go from the passing of the piece into the eating. And so everyone would say, we passed the piece, then we passed the pizza. Um, and I just, that, to me, that's one of my favorite sort of dinner church lines and, uh, is, you know, pass the piece, then pass the pizza, that the two really go, go hand in hand. Um, but when I, when I talk with pastors who are thinking about starting dinner churches, one of the pieces of advice that I always give is, um, it's adapted sort of from something that, um, Emily Scott, um, told me who she's the founding pastor of St. Lydia's in Brooklyn. 
And she had said that she, to, to always look for the hunger of the community that you're in and then develop a service that um, really addresses that hunger. And so I, I encourage pastors to look for the hungers um, as well as the gifts and the needs um, of the of the community that you're in. And, you know, is that hunger for something like pizza? Then serve pizza. Um, but then also look at the, the gifts. Is your community one that's full of farmers and bakers? Then maybe you do want to have the farm fresh um, food and the, the, the freshly baked breads. Um, you know, maybe you have um, a cake decorator who is a part of your community, then by all means have these beautiful elaborate cakes because this is a way for um, one of the gifts that's present in your community to, um, to help build your community. It's beautiful. And so you've got me um, thinking about food and this is this is a shout out for, for Jerusalem Jerusalem I made an egg salad sandwich last week and I used eggs from our local farmer who provides our meats and eggs and I had made candied jalapenos that I canned myself and I made it with Duke's mayo and I'm like it's a game changer Jerusalem was right I can't even believe it I mean it is different <laughs> I love it. So, and I'm like, you know, Mayo's like, eh, Dukes mm -hmm. is different. So thank you for that. So, so our question for you, Kendall, is what is the dish or the meal that just makes you sigh with comfort? Like what's your comfort food if you're going to get in the <laughs> oh, kitchen? Oh man. Well, I, I probably have two. One is going to be wholly unsurprising and that's bread, bread of any form. <laughs> Um, I always love, love bread. Um, but then my second is Bluebell homemade vanilla ice cream. <laughs> um, I am originally from Texas and uh, all of my extended family is from Texas. And we were sort of the, the one group of Vander Slices to, to leave Texas when I was young. And so for um, most of my life, I have not had access to Bluebell ice cream. And so whenever we go back to Texas to visit, my grandmother would stock up her deep freeze with <laughs> half gallons of homemade vanilla. Um, and that's, it is just the thing that I think, think of comfort food. I think of that ice cream. Oh, that's great. <laughs> <laughs> now I need ice cream. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah. I love I that. now am the only one of my siblings or, or immediate family that does have access to it. So I sort of have a responsibility to drive it with me up to Boston whenever I go visit. <laughs> So you can get it here in Indianapolis. This is how I know that we're really in the South. <laughs> you know, you can find any kind of milk ice cream. You can see Bluebell in the, in the case there. Oh, I love it. That's amazing. Well, Kendall, what, um, thank you. This has been amazing. And I, I agree with Bishop Jennifer. We could talk to you for uh, hours, um, for sure. And hopefully someday we'll all be in the same place and we will, we will get to do that. Right. Like in person. Um, but what are a few of the resources, these can be resources you've developed, but other resources that are out in the world um, that anyone who is thinking of starting dinner church or wants to integrate really edible theology or, or bread making, bread baking, maybe they want to start making their Eucharist bread, right, as part of some sort of practice. Um, so yeah, what resources would you just really highly recommend? And whatever you share with us, um, listeners, we'll make sure to put these in the show notes as well. So you'll have a link. Yeah. So, well, Edible Theology has several resources to choose from. Um, if you want to learn how to bake bread, um, then I have a Bake and Pray. Uh, bake and Pray workshop is my um, bread baking workshop, but you learn how to bake a loaf of bread, but then also how to use that process of bread baking as a spiritual practice. 
Um, and so that's available. Um, we have an on-demand version, so you can watch the videos as many times as you need. Um, so you can watch them every time you make bread if you need <laughs> some, some continued guidance. Um, but then we also have a, a curriculum called Bake with the Bible, which was six lesson curriculum, technically for children, although a lot of adults are really loving it too, uh, that walks through six stories of bread in the gospels um, and then ties those stories to the ways that bread has been used throughout history um, and around the world. And so that is um, a really great resource for those who want to understand sort of the theological and historical role of bread a little bit more. Um, and we have a version for churches um, to use as Sunday school or as VBS, but then we also have a version for families to use um, at the breakfast table or at the dinner table. Uh, and then if you are interested in dinner churches, uh, my program Worship at the Table is a really great place to start thinking about how to implement that in your own congregation. Um, as far as resources outside of edible theology, I would highly recommend the book Supper of the Lamb to anyone who hasn't read it. <laughs> um, I think it's, uh, it is still my absolute favorite. It's Father Robert Farquhar, it is his kind of the culmination of all of his gifts, which is humor writing and food writing and theological writing. And I was just actually rereading the Onion chapter last night. And <laughs> um, it is, if, if you are still hesitant to believe that food and faith have anything to do with one another, then, then that is the place that I always recommend to start. Um, but another really great read is um, Gisela Kreglinger's book, The, the Soul of Wine and the Spirit of Wine. Um, and we just had a conversation with her last week that um, some folks from Edible Theology um, had a conversation with her all about the spirituality of wine and the ways that um, wine, all that wine has to teach us also about God and God's desire for community. Um, it was, I, I feel like it sort of ties together Father Capon's book and also um, my, my work with bread. But in, in Supper of the Lamb, Father Capon says that the wine elevates the Eucharist from mere subs, uh, sustenance to conviviality, that, that the bread sustains us, but the wine is what builds this joyful community. And um, when Gisela and I talked together, it felt like that's exactly what sort of our work together um, does. So those are, those are some resources that I highly recommend. Well, well, those are wonderful. Thank you. It feels like we've got a bit of our sort of our canon for the foundational <laughs> reading and um, exploration. So thank you so much for being with us, Kendall. And I think that's a wrap. I'm sorry to say, um, if you want to know more about Triple S, Spade, Spoon, Soul, and this podcast and the resources that we have laid out for you today, you can find us on Facebook at Spade, Spoon, Soul and the Facebook page. Or you can send us an email at spadespoonsoulpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you also for um, our producer, to our producer, Derek Weston, who also happens to be a Presbyterian pastor, community organizer, urban farmer, filmmaker. The list doesn't end. He just keeps adding on. It's amazing, all his work. So we are grateful for him. Um, to be a part of this project with us. And also the multi-talented Jade Seibotham, who did our wonderful um, logo art, and Ryan Lee for the groovy music. Well, until next time, we hope that you'll find ways to connect your soul to your spade or spoon or both. <laughs>